This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. Well, I am joined in studio again by my friend and colleague, Pastor Bruss. And Pastor Bruss, seeing how we are both preachers and we desire to improve upon the preaching task, I thought it would be interesting for us to, well, just take a listen to a couple different preachers and hear how they preach because it doesn't matter that they're just getting up preaching the Bible. There is a right way to interpret the Bible, and there obviously is a wrong way to interpret the Bible. So basically, you are presenting to us today a few sermons that you think have not hit it on the head. Oh, (laughs) right. These guys are in left field. What are their hermeneutical presuppositions? And when we say hermeneutics, what do they presuppose about the scriptures in their interpretation of it? They start with where they're wanting to go first, and they're going to use the Bible to underscore or be a spring pad, a launching pad, to where they're actually wanting to go. So in other words, they've got a roadmap for what their sermon's going to look like, apart from what they've read in the scriptures that week, perhaps. And what they're doing is they're then putting together a sort of pastiche of things uh, that they find in the scriptures that, that they think are going to address the topic at hand. That's my guess. Okay. So how does that differ from a Lutheran, uh, a Lutheran approach to the scriptures? This is the big question, is it not? Right, because this interpretation that we're going to hear, my question is, what is this doing to the people? How is this forming and shaping them? Because all it's going to do is turn them around to do the exact same thing in their own reading, or if they happen to be teachers, they're going to do the same thing. Sure. For Lutheran, The meaning of Scripture is given by the text itself. There is no presupposition on what the text must mean. You know, there's this Reformation-era dictum, and I think the Calvinists even espouse it, sensus literalis unus est. The literal sense is, is a singular sense. And so every chunk of scripture, every passage of scripture, every verse of scripture, every pericope, as we call it, uh, has a meaning. Now, you can plumb that meaning in all sorts of different ways. There's no question about it. So it's not as if, um, you know, the if you and I were to preach on, let's say, the parable of the sower, which we did. We just did that back to back, right, uh, on uh, a week or two ago. And your sermon was different from my sermon, but the overall thrust of both sermons was not at odds with each other. It's just that we focused our approach in a slightly different way. Yours was more on the power of the gospel to transform. Okay, so that was that was yours, and mine, I, I think, uh, would have been focused uh, more upon the, uh, the sort of foolish generosity of the sower, both of which are true things uh, coming out of the text. And, of course, over the course of both of the homilies, we took into account all of the other data inside of the text and preached, preached it fully. So what we're not saying here when we say the sensus literalis unus est, we're not saying that there is a cookie-cutter kind of way of preaching a text 
But what we are saying is that whatever the text says, that's the only thing it says. It doesn't say something else. Well, I think you're going to be shocked by some of the things that you hear, unfortunately, in this podcast. But I do think it's interesting that you bring up out of the blue uh, the parable of the sower and the seed, because the very first clip that I have is a guy who is speaking about that very parable. No way. I went to Lowe's this week. Do you know I was, it took me three trips to Lowe's to finish this week. It's rough to go to Lowe's. But one of my trips there, I was going to get soil for my wife because she bought these beautiful planters, and we wanted to plant them, in, you know, the planters in front of the house right by the door, so it looked awesome. And, um, you know, the winter had killed the old stuff, and so we're ready to, you know, plant some new stuff. We want our neighbors to, you know, see us all cleaned up and looking good. And so I went to, I went to Lowe's to get some some you know plants and and then I got to the the section where all the potting soil is and there's like 20 different kinds of potting soil and I'm like what in the world how many types of potting soil do you need and so I'm kind of walking around and checking it out and and I found the the bag and it said miracle grow potting soil I'm like that's my kind of soil right there I want miracles. And so I walked away thinking about my message, and I thought, I want the soil of my life to be miracle grow dirt. I'm like, God, I want miracles in my life. I want one word from God. I want the Holy Spirit to take a seed of the word of God planted in my life, and it produced 30, 60. And listen, church, I'm going for the hundredfold blessings in my life. You want 100 in your life? Come on, open up your heart. Get in the word of God and let him plant his word in your heart and watch it work. Amen? Amen. Where else do we get the word of God? Well, church is a great place to get the word of God. Like, you know what church is? It's like a seed factory. Like, we're planting seeds like crazy around here. Like, from the worship on. Our worship leader, Scott, was standing right here. Man, he was spitting seeds out everywhere. If you had an open heart, you were like, come on. You're like, I want the kingdom of heaven. I want to, you know, have faith for the kingdom of heaven. And like, man, seeds going out everywhere. We're up here praying for you. Seeds everywhere. Listen, when I'm preaching, listen, I don't even have to be very good. But I'm spitting seeds everywhere. Like, they're going everywhere right now. Why? Because that's the Word of God. Listen, I can be, I can just totally blow a sermon, and as long as I get a few verses out, it's going to be fine for you. Because the, the power of the miracle isn't in my way of delivery, but it's in the power and the life of the Word of God and the soil of your heart. And if you've got the soil, if you've got miracle grow in your life, Man, I can plant a seed there, and you're going to see it come to life in you. Now, let's hope that I don't blow the sermon. But it takes the pressure off. Like, like I, listen, I just get up here and have fun. Share a few verses, tell some stories, make you laugh, make you cry. We're good. It's the Word of God. All right, now there was some good things in that little portion there. But just the way you looked at me as it came to an end, I think, says it all. I mean, he is 
admitting that he just gets up there and has some fun and tells some stories and makes them laugh and makes them cry. And he's right when we say that it is the word of God that is the the power, so to speak, in a sermon. But this kind of goes back to something you said in a staff meeting just this past week about how the preached word is the word. He is bifurcating the two. He is. I, I noticed that right away, that he that what he identifies as the word is, uh, in his language, a few Bible passages. Right. So if he just gets up and blows the sermon— His jokes aren't funny. He hasn't made him laugh. He hasn't made him cry. The people are tired. They're just not getting it. Whatever. But as long as he's got some Bible in there, then he's spitting out seeds, and that's really all that matters. That really reduces the preaching task, doesn't it? If all I need to do is throw out a few Bible passages, why not just have the lessons prior to the homily and, and, and step away, right? But Luther talks about this in a very different way when he talks about the third commandment, right? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What does this mean? We should fear and love God, and listen to how he puts this, so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. So Luther, in accord with what Christ himself says, right, he who hears you hears me, what Luther does is he recognizes that the actual sermon is the word of God. And that raises the level of responsibility. It raises the burden on the preacher because when you stand in the pulpit, your aim is not to make people laugh. Your aim is not to make people cry, not to tickle their ears, whatever it might be. It is to proclaim the message of Christ. To me here, it sounds like that's not the aim of a sermon. And just to touch on this again, we've done it before, but when Luther in the small catechism says that we should not despise preaching in his word, most people would hear that and think, well, I don't hate preaching in God's word. That is not the definition that we should be working from in that this is an emotional response. It's to choose something else. To think little of it. Right, relative to something else. Good. There, there is despising on, on two sides. There's despising on the hearer's side of that equation, and there's the despising on the preacher's side of that equation. How would you react if I were to say something like this? Uh, what we've just heard here seems to me to be a despising of preaching on the part of the preacher himself. Totally. I mean, we could take issue with some of the things he said and that he wants his heart to be the miracle grow soil. And if, you, if you've if you got miracle grow soil, you know, wow. I mean, you, people are are clapping at this because, of course, they want the hundredfold. They don't want the 30 or 60. And so now the onus is on you is to figure out how to do that, how to create this miracle grow dirt. But yet the bigger problem is how the preacher sees the preaching task. Look, I'll be the first one to say that the preaching task is ominous. It is burdensome. If there was some way for me to get out of that, believe me, I would be the first one to do it. But that's not the role of the preacher, nor is it his duty 
And when you say that's not the role of the preacher, you mean what is not the role of the preacher? To despise the preaching oh, task. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> right. It's, it, in fact, the very opposite. What does St. Peter say? Etis lalejos logia theu. If somebody speaks, let it be as the oracles of God. And that is the preaching task. So what we've heard thus far is that there's really two tiers of preaching in that there's one that is initiated and fulfilled by the preacher and the other that is, well, the word of God itself. But what you're advocating is these are the same in the preaching task. There's no difference between the revealed word that is spoken and the preached word that is spoken. Faith cometh by means of both. Correct. It's not just the Bible passage sprinkled in your sermon. You know, I would have to say, I'd have to commend him. You know, let's talk about a few of the commendatory things here. He does recognize that the that the seed of the word does something. And that's wonderful that he that he does have that recognition. Uh, I think there are a lot of people would regard the Holy Spirit as operating apart from or alongside of uh, of the Word of God and not in and through the Word of God. Lutherans think and believe that the Spirit works in and through the Word of God, that the Word of God uh, goes out and accomplishes that for which the Lord has sent it. And it's not as if the word is ineffectual when it doesn't have the results that we think it ought to have. Can we talk a little bit, though, about this whole business of miracle grow? You just tiptoed up to it and mentioned rightly that uh, this whole metaphor sort of play, not doesn't sort of, it entirely places the onus on the hearer. Right. They They just got strapped with the law, so to speak, and really not even a God law. It's a, a man-made law, and yet they're excited about it and, and applauding it. And yes, Lord, do this in me. Make my bag of dirt that is my heart into miracle grow so that it can receive the word of God and bring forth a huge harvest. And we would say the same thing, I think, in a, in a way, right? Lord, you make it this way for me. But, but we can't make our soil into miracle grow. No. Again, it's asking them to jump up and touch something that they can't do. Right. And actually, here's the irony. If you, if you are asking the Lord <laughs> um, to make your soil into miracle grow soil, it already is. Because it already, the, the seed has sprouted uh, and it is a healthy, growing seed that clings to God's promises for the sake of Christ. I think that's putting the best construction on it, quite honestly, but uh, but it sounds really good. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what we're going to do next. We're going to listen to a guy, and he reads a lot of Bible. So it's it's taking the what we just heard. There's going to be a lot of Bible, but the interpretation is just so screwy. Today, I want to talk to you about relational pain. Um, we're going to begin our journey today in Genesis chapter 11. 
verse 27. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. If you go on to verse 31, it says, Terah took his son, Abram, his grandson Lot of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. This city was named after Terah's son, Haran. Terah settled in Haran. Many theologians and historians believe that it was Terah, not Abraham, who received that heavenly vision of a promised place, a promised land for his people. Many believe it was Terah, not Abraham, who first um, established a covenant relationship with God. I had no idea. Wow, I, th- I mean, I've kind of made it my life work to, to read theologians, and I'd never heard that before. I have never heard that before in my life either. Nihil ultra verbum, nothing beyond the word. And here we have just pure speculation. Uh, where in the world would this uh, have been deduced from i have no idea even though in hebrews it says by faith and it clearly says abraham which in this sermon he actually references uh, a couple verses from hebrews and i'm thinking bro just read a couple chapters over and it's very clear that tara is not listed as leaving anything by faith, that it clearly was Abraham. But see, he's setting up something. He's read the scriptures, and so if we think just in terms of what the preacher says versus what the Word of God says, he has read the Word of God. But he's already questioning what the text actually says. And he's going beyond the text to to establish something else that he wants it to say. Right, and that's going to be this springboard into talking about, well... You take a listen. But we see here that Terah ended up dying in Haran. He never walked into the promised place, the promised land of God's blessing. You see, he got stuck in the place of relational pain. Oftentimes, It's relational pain that keeps us stuck and moving forward into our potential. It's relational pain that pollutes our relationships. It's relational pain that will destroy our relationship with God. The one thing that will sabotage your success, rob you of your potential, is relational pain. You see, Terah never reached Canaan. He never could get out of that place of pain. I believe with all my heart, the number one destroyers of destinies is relational pain. This blows my mind. 
I have no idea where he has fetched any of this stuff from. But it's the word of God. He's he's he, right. He's he's spe- he's talking about biblical characters, uh, and uh, and he's just woven this unbelievable web of lies. It is, I mean, pull start tugging on any one of those strings, and the whole thing falls apart. As you pointed out, the promise was given to Abraham, not to Terah, and. Uh, so number one, that just makes makes this whole thing fall apart. Number two, where in the world is there relational pain anywhere in this text? We hear nothing of it. But he believes with all of his heart that relational pain is what stops us, using the metaphor from the previous guy, stops our hearts from being miracle grow. And it crushes our destinies and hampers our success, Pastor Bruns. What do you think possibly could be the relational pain that he's speaking of? Wouldn't he have had to have a falling out with... Oh, I'm sure that's in the white spaces there in between the, the sentences, don't you think? I mean... Right. <laughs> the, the not revealed word of God. Wow. So he's going to go on and on about this relational pain, and it's really... It's really sad, honestly, because it's almost like a therapy session. He's going to talk about all of his relational pain, and I cut all that garbage out. Really, what I'm wanting us to examine is how the Word of God really is abused. But he'll pick it up here. Tara's decision held everyone back. God ultimately divided and separated his family. He called Abraham to continue in the purpose and plan of God. It not only pollutes our relationships, but ultimately will destroy our relationship with God. Tara never was heard from again. Oftentimes our horizontal relationships determine our vertical relationships. He's really spinning this out, isn't he? He really is, and... We go back at this point to what we said at the first, the, the sensus literalis onus est uh, rule is so critical. The literal sense of the scriptures has only one meaning, and what he's talking about isn't it. This is history. Reacting to this sermon is like reacting to somebody who grabs me by the arm, takes me outside, and points up to the sky and says the sky is black. What do you say? I don't know what you say, other than, you fool. The problem, though, is that this type of hermeneutic is preached in pulpits all over the country. It's active in the pulpits. So no one is saying, I'm just going to use Scripture as a springboard, right? This is my hermeneutics. Uh, What it is, is it's a bait and switch. I'm going to take a word of God, and but I'm going to talk about whatever I want to talk about and somehow connect it to this tangentially to this to this word of God. But and so not, it makes it seem like it's scriptural preaching, and it's absolutely diametrically opposed to it. Correct. But they're not doing this out of a sense of manipulation. This is the way they have been trained. They don't know any other way. But it's a demonic way. Without question. Is this a judgment of God? I can't answer the question, but the Lord gives us exactly what we ask for. 
Man. Well, let's uh, jump to his conclusion. And I'm not going to have to live in Haran, the place of relational pain, derailed by a supernatural attack of the enemy. And I'll never have to wonder, man, could my life have been greater? Could God have gotten more, God have gotten more glory? Because I've learned to live a life where I let God in and I reveal the hurt and the pain. With every head bowed and every eye closed. So that was his conclusion after the therapy session. So he begins with the Word of God, has this cattywampus interpretation, somehow or another connecting this to relational pain, which he talks about through the bulk of the sermon, and then is touching on the fact that as sinners, we all have relational pain. And then the mood music begins, and I'm sure everybody is standing up at this point, and he'll deliver some sort of challenge to embrace your relational pain. So... Are you having relational pain right now, Pastor Pross? I always have relational pain. There's no question about it. I, it's it's also known as sin, right? I regularly sin against my neighbor by what I fail to do and by what I do do. And I, I'm I I really am speechless because, it, you know, if let's just suppose that Tara actually had been given the promise. Okay. okay. If Tara had been given the promise, this is simply a story about somebody who rejected the promise. It, it is not about relational pain. The relational pain, whatever he's seeing here as relational pain, comes after, I mean, <clears throat> right? He's saying, well, Abraham and, and his father had to part ways. That's when the relational pain sets in. It's not like Haran is this place where I, th- this is just ridiculous. I, I, as soon as you start to say, right. <laughs> "How can this possible? How can this possibly work out?" The schema doesn't work. Right. You you've got you are walking, you know, off the edge of the scaffold here. You've got nothing underneath you, and you're like this. Uh, you remember the old uh, uh, Wiley E. Coyote, how they would go off the cliff and they would levitate there for just a few moments, you know, and then they realize, oh, yeah, there's right. no ground right. underneath me. <laughs> Boom. And you fall. Yeah, right. So let's talk about what the text actually does mean. Sure. Because that, that is the important we've said, census literalis unus est. And so the text has to mean something. What does it mean? What it means is that the Lord who acts on his own initiative in saving whom he will save has reached into the lives of these idolaters and by his own volition snatched Abraham away from this and made him the father of the promised seed, blessed him immensely. This is what the text teaches and preaches. And this is how somebody ought to preach and teach the text. Just like you and I uh, were born as complete sinners, Psalm 51, uh, had no hope of heaven whatsoever. And yet, for whatever volitional reason on God's part, he reached into our crummy little lives, grabbed us, and made us his own children. 
And so there's wonderful comfort in here for Christians, is there not? And the comfort is this, that, that if I am a believer in Christ, this is the Lord's doing, not my own. And I can rest confident in that, uh, in that sort of uh, what you know, we call monergism. This is God working on his own to save. But there's no touching there in what you just said on a felt need. This was the revolution of Rick Warren's preaching, and even before him, Rod Schuler, is that you've got to address people's felt needs. That has to be the penultimate aim of the preacher. All that does is it does not allow the scriptures to speak as the scriptures. God's word is not so much a grammatical word. It is rather things and people. Your word and my word are just this sort of grammatical exchange. And if I say a noun, well, is the noun there? No, it, my, my word doesn't make the noun there. Uh, when God says a noun, guess what? It's there. So in other words, God's word is this effective and creative uh, thing that doesn't just interpret reality. It determines reality. And what God in his word determines about human beings is that we are fallen sinners in need of nothing quite so much as the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. When you go to felt needs preaching, you're letting the word of man take the role of God's word. Then it dictates. And then it, right, and then, and then what it does you come to that with uh, you come with that to to what actually God has said, and you completely warp it and make it say what it doesn't say. With you saying that, I recall what happened last night at our Ash Wednesday service in the corporate confession and absolution. There was that wonderful that wonderful question that you only see in the individual or private confession and absolution, or for instance. Um, maybe in a homebound visit that you're dealing with somebody who, who can't read. And that question of, do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? I mean, and everybody, you know, yes. It's great to hear that, isn't it? It is. It is. And then you say, then may it be done for let, you as you believe. Let it be done for you as you believe. Yep. In the stead and by the command of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I forgive you all of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, that is the Word of God right there, right? It's not, it's not me saying nouns and verbs and adverbs. It's a, it, is, it is happening. Something is happening here. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier with the preaching task, doesn't it? Where it's not just uh, <clears throat> the the word of God isn't there just when you're citing a Bible passage. The reason that m your word of forgiveness is God's word of forgiveness isn't because Devin Kearns said it so. Right. It's because God said it so. Well, we'll take a break from this guy. We're going to come back to him, but oh, I know boy. you can only do so much. But this, what we're getting ready to hear now is another preacher who uses a very hip and trendy modern look at an old story that you're familiar with and interestingly enough he says right at the outset that this is a different interpretation than what we're used to i've tried to look at this passage kind of from a different angle and this is 
maybe more of the traditional way that we look at this particular passage, and that's what I want to talk to you about today, is how to kill a giant. A giant is anything in your life that kind of dominates you or dominates your thinking, or you look at this situation and you say, man, I could not overcome this, or I cannot get the victory over this. And really what this passage lines up for us at the end of this passage is how to kill a giant. So all of us deal with giants. All of us deal with issues. Maybe your giant uh, deals somewhat with with relational. Maybe your giant is uh, tied to money. Maybe it's tied to your health. Uh, I don't know what your giant is. I don't know what it is in your life that looks unconquerable or there's no way that I can get the victory over this. Maybe you have an addiction uh, something that you're struggling with that you can't seem to get the victory over. This, this sermon is for all of us that are dealing with these particular issues. So how did David finally kill this giant? Ooh, 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 I remember, Pastor Buss. He used a slingshot. Actually, no, he didn't. He didn't use a slingshot. He didn't? No, he had the power of positive thinking, and he attacked his giant with nothing but positive thinking. Wow, that is so, um, what is that guy's name, Edward Casey? Uh, what, what, I don't what, know, but it. But but this is exactly Edgar where this, Casey, is, this has Casey. to go, isn't it? Because, so, because you, your giant is, I mean, take any problem. I got a hangnail, this is my giant. And if I just have a positive attitude toward my hangnail, why, it's going to go away. I don't know what else he's going to do with it. No, it, the, the hangnail is not going to go away. We're going to kill it. Oh, we're going to kill it. Yeah. Right, right. And this is what's always bothered me about this interpretation, which, again, is quite popular. Because you can see, I mean, as soon as the pastor sets it up, you, the person who is very familiar with the story of David and Goliath, they obviously are David. The Goliath is any giant that happens to be in my life. My mother-in-law. How can I kill my mother-in-law? I mean, really, this is where this is going. How did David kill the giant? Then that's the way you kill the giant. And then what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to read through the narrative. Again, he is speaking the word of God. But now everything becomes a blueprint as to how you deal with some uh, affliction, whether it's your boss, your credit card debt, uh, your mother-in-law, your hangnail, whatever. Let's talk about how this departs from sensus literalis unus est. Please. What is the point of the history? And let's not talk about it as a story. It's not a story. So that maybe It's an event. Is, it's an event. This actually occurred. Why in the world did it occur? Why does God record it? This is the question that the, that the proper biblical interpreter must ask. Uh, th- there are manifold reasons for which it's recorded. Number one, David is the anointed king of Israel, and this shows, this shows his, his power, number one, as the anointed representative of God. Well, anointed, but yet not reigning. And yet not reigning. And the fact that Jesus Christ is in his loins. Yes, David has to preserve uh, Israel, and he does it in his own person, uh, because the promise must be preserved. This is how God is working uh, things out. And this is an enemy of God's people, Goliath is. Let us not forget that. What does God do to his enemies? He smites them. Yeah, and if you wanted to 
extrapolate Goliath as being representative of someone, I think it's a safe interpretation to say that this is this is really no different from Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. I mean, he is Israel reduced to one. The enemy is against him. And this should be an easy, easy deal in that the devil tempted the first Adam who had no sin nature. Now we come against the second Adam who has no sin nature. We've done this before and won. This should be a very easy battle. And then, of course, after Jesus is baptized, you are my beloved, or this is my beloved son, the first thing that the devil does is challenge that word of God, just like took pl- just like that which took place in the garden. So, I mean, if you wanted to extrapolate David and Goliath into Jesus and Satan and the defeat of Satan and the whole cutting off of Goliath's head, and this is exactly what Jesus would do. He would crush the devil's head. Hey, man, I'm all about that. But now if you make me out to be David and whatever uh, sin or whatever, let's go back to what we just heard, some relational pain is now your Goliath, it robs the, how would you say it, the Christocentric nature of the Bible. So it violates another rule of of the scriptures, the hermeneutical rule of the scriptures. If Jesus is the one who says that it's all about Jesus, and now this guy is making it where it's really about me, the the listener, the the, the Christian, it's it's huge a huge problem. So so what this misses, right? What the David, what this interpretation of the of the um, this guy's interpretation of David and Goliath misses, is it misses the the radically um, for me on my behalf work of God. God steps in for me. So David, in other words, what what you're saying, I'm trying to boil this all down. What you're saying is that David is this type of Christ who stands in for all of Israel and uh, defeats the enemies of God. That's exactly what I'm saying. Right. You have a whole bunch of people who are sitting on top of a hill looking down at Goliath. They believe that God is greater than that giant, but that, that has not moved them to action. It moved David to action. This is why a lot of times we don't get victory over our giants in our lives because we don't really believe that God can give us the victory. So you can see what he's doing here. He's going through the narrative, and then he's going to parse out each one of these individual steps that one needs to take in order to conquer their giant. Is the sky black, Pastor Russ? The sky is black. Is somebody grabbing you at this point and, and making you look up at the sky and say that it's black? And I have nothing to say in response. <laughs> how did he kill it? How do you kill a giant? How did David kill a giant? Number three, run toward your giant. I love the, the phrase there. 
So it was that when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Which clearly means that you're supposed to run to your credit card debt. Apparently, that's what, the, what, what this means. Still nothing? I'm, I'm flabbergasted. I mean, this, I mean, you've never heard of this interpretation? We, we, did, we did one of these. Did we really? Yeah, yeah. We listened to three of them, I think. And uh, I, I just don't know, I, I don't know what else to say besides, what? I mean, David, all of David's confidence rests solely on the fact that he is the anointed one of God. This, this is his job as God's anointed. That's all I got. <laughs> You shaking your head uh, does not do well on podcast. No, <laughs> no, it doesn't. I don't know what else to say. I mean, he goes forward in the name of the Lord. What does this mean to go forward in the name of the Lord, except for at the Lord's command and behest, and um, and as as the Lord's anointed servant, and having faith in that, believing tr- it, tr- trusting that, right? Um, and you know to. Uh, I mean, good night. Jesus said something in Matthew 5 that, some, that a lot of people have misunderstood and even taken this literally to the point that they've done it. So this is not what Jesus is advocating here in Matthew 5, 29. He says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. So a lot of people, I mean, I've heard of people that have done this. Not, I've not known them personally. No, but just you, you hear... You, you see people that do stuff like this. So he says, For it is far more profitable for you that one of your members perish than that your whole body be cast into hell. Verse 30 of Matthew 5. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. What Jesus is saying here, when you're fighting a giant in your life, you need to take drastic measures to get it out of your life. John Owens, who was a Puritan years ago, is most famous for this quote. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. That's an important line to remember. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. So let me me make it practical. If I have a giant in my life, if if I'm a male or a female, and I have a porn problem in my life, and it is destroying relationships, and it's destroying everything around me. It's destroying my marriage and my relationship with the opposite sex. And if I have this problem, okay, if I have a porn problem, and this is the giant in my life, I would remove every instrument that would give me access to porn in my home. You say, you mean like go back to flip phone stages? Yes. Somebody said to me once, I've never forgotten this, they said, if you take your cell phone, if you take your smartphone and you give it to your kid and you, you, there's no, there's no uh, limit to what they, where they can go or what they can look at, it's like putting a stack of porn magazines in the corner of their bedroom and saying, hey, don't look at that. You got to be merciless to your giant. So if you have this issue and it is destroying you, it is destroying everything around you. Man, I would be merciless to get it out of my life. 
I would get rid of my computers, I would get rid of my smartphones, I would get rid of anything that I could easily access this problem. That's chopping the head off. If I have a spending problem where I can't, man, I just I can't turn down a deal. And I have credit card debt that, that's unmanageable, and I'm constantly going over, and I'm not, I, I'm not living on a then I would shred every credit card I have. Be merciless to it. That's what David did here with this giant. He cut his head off. This guy ain't coming back. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. All right, now I wanted to include this, because what he is saying, what he's advocating... He's right. For the most part, what he's saying is good, right, and salutary. I guess my problem is, is that we're, we're taking the biblical narrative and we're superimposing over top of it this way to kill your giant, i.e. sin, and then we're jumping to what Jesus says in regard to how we should deal with sin and that we should should hate it. This problem, I, the overall issue, I have no problem with. It's, it's the interpretation of David and Goliath. Help me here. I, I think you're exactly right. So the mortification of the flesh is a good, right, and salutary thing. It's part of the cross of the Christian. And the Christian is uh, to strive daily uh, as a baptized child of Christ to, to um, put off sin, be done with it, right? Drown the old Adam. Exactly. Now, how is this done? This is done through the proclamation of God's law. And he, he is right. One element of contending against sin is to flee the near occasion of sin. So if your cell phone is leading you to porn, get a flip phone, Right. That's that's what you got to do. Interestingly, he doesn't go after the problem of the heart, and that's that's where the bigger issue is. Uh, Jesus says uh, that it's not what enters a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of the heart of a man, and out of the heart of the man flow murders and adulteries and blah, blah, blah. The sin list goes on. I, I mean, I think, I think it's important to, to see that he's got a sort of smaller view of how God's law should be working in the life of a Christian. And because of that, this is the important thing, because of that, he does not and cannot understand the event of David and Goliath properly. David steps forth on behalf of Israel. Christ steps forth on behalf of his church. Uh, and he is the one who slays these giants. How does he slay the, if you will, I hate this, slay the giant of sin? He does it through the forgiveness of sins. Right, and that's why I wanted to include this this excerpt as well, because there's no talk of forgiveness. No, look, that's fine. Contend against sin your whole life long. It ain't going to deal with the problem. There's only one who can. It's Christ, and he does it through through his forgiveness. What did you think of the oh the 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 quote there? Be killing sin, or it gonna be killing you. That's that's the uh, the the word on the street. My problem with that is 
sin does kill us. Right. That, that's why we die. Sure. That's and that's a wonderful preaching of the law. I love that. I mean, I, I actually think it's a great quote. But but if it's not followed up with uh, sin is forgiven uh, you in Christ, right? I mean, so so the law in all of its severity must be constantly proclaimed, and the gospel in all of its sweetness must be constantly proclaimed. This is the law in all of its severity. But all he's been doing is talking about law. Right, right, and that's the issue. If he if he's leaving it there, if this is the sum and total of his instruction to his flock for the week, that's an issue. Let's say what we just heard was really what he's wanting as the pastor of this congregation to talk about. Really, that right there. Folks, let's deal with sin. Oh, okay. Right? Go, go to the epistles. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, we didn't need all this other, uh, this represents this, and this represents this, and this is how you do it by following the examples that David followed. Correct. It's crazy. And what it does is it... Is it as you've pointed out just many, many times, it just guts all of David of his Christological typology, which is which turns the scriptures into a closed book in a way. It's like taking the bus schedule, the published bus schedule, and reading it as directions for painting your room. Ugh. Right? You're looking for one thing in the text, and but its whole point is something entirely different. Um, they're looking for directions for their life in the text. And as Jesus says, right, you search the scriptures and yet for, for everlasting life, and yet they point to me. Uh, what is that saying? Uh, you're missing the, the forest for the trees. R- right. Yeah, this is like total tree focus. <laughs> but here's the problem. They, they, he has avoided the sensus literalis unus est. Has he not? Well, anytime somebody looks at a narrative as a, uh, you know, you're, you're looking at a, a, a descriptive text and making it into a prescriptive text, the, it, it's going to do what you just said. All right, well, we're going to be done with him. Yet again, another faulty interpretation. And then we'll go back to the same guy that we started with, and we'll hear yet again more Scripture but a really bizarre interpretation. So this is the parable of the sower guy or the Terra guy? Terra guy. guy. Okay. I'd like to take a minute and welcome all of you that are watching online and streaming today. Come on, City Church, let's make them feel welcome and at home. And um, today I want to preach a sermon entitled "The Sneeze." The sneeze. Turn to your neighbor and say, "The sneeze." Um, I want to have you go with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. I want to kind of set the stage here. The Bible says that there was a woman that was from Shunem, and she was a notable woman. And when Elisha, the prophet, would minister in the area, uh, she was compelled to uh, care for him, provide food for him, Ultimately, her and her husband um, built a room in their home for him to stay and to lodge whenever he was near. And her generosity towards him um, produced uh, a heart for her household and for her. And so he asked her at one point, he asked her through his assistant, um, what can I do for you? 
And, you know, she, she really didn't respond. And he made several offerings of things that he could do with his influence and with his ability and connections and resources. And ultimately, it was his assistant, Gehazi, who said, you know, she and her husband do not have a son. They do not have an heir. And we see in biblical times that a son, a firstborn, was significant. It was someone that would continue the legacy. It was someone that would inherit your wealth and carry your name. It was a sign of blessing. It was a sign of God flourishing and prospering you. And so he prophesies to her and says, about this time next year, you will uh, conceive a son. And she responded, you know, but my husband is old. Now this is pre, you know, Viagra uh, and Cialis. And so I I think what she's saying here is, is, uh, you know, I I love you and I love your ministry, but I don't think you've paid attention to our age and the stage of life that we are in. Uh, But God's word is true. God's promises are yes and amen. And the next year... I hate to interrupt this guy, but Pastor Bruce, is he reading the text? No, he's telling the story. She was pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. And this was a tremendous blessing for her and her husband and their household. And the son came of age. And the Bible says here that in this season of reaping, uh, in the season of reaping, that her son um, began to experience headaches. Um, and her son uh, cried out about the severe pain. And so the father sent his son from the field of reaping. Isn't it just like the devil that right in the middle of God blessing you, right in the middle of your harvest, right? Um, he, he begins to work and resist Um, the good thing that God is doing. But how many of you know no weapon formed against us will prosper? The Bible doesn't say there won't be any weapons. It just means that they won't prosper. And so we see that in this this chapter, um, and I'm kind of setting up the stage, we see that uh, the young man um, ultimately uh, died in his mother's arms, and she had some major attitude. She had some serious swag because she didn't even sweat it. She just took the boy into the prophet Elisha's room, the room that he stayed in, laid him on his bed. Notice she didn't take the boy to his bed. She took him to the prophet's bedroom that she had built for him to stay. And she went out and she found the prophet. And she basically said to him, look, my son, right? My son was spoken by you. This promise, right? This, this miracle that we have started with you when you decided that you wanted to bless me. So you need to come to your room where my son, right, is sleeping. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't mess with the Shunammite woman. <laughs> and, uh, and so the Shunammite woman here gets in the prophet's face and the prophet comes back to her home into the room in which he stayed, which he lodged in, and him and his assistant begin to pray. And we pick it up here in verse 32, and it says, Elisha came into the house 
where the child lying dead on his bed, he went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. All right, so he's reading the text there. But as he said, did you catch it just uh, momentarily? He said, I'm setting the stage. Right, he's setting it up. So he, he wants to tell the story in a certain way. Right, and uh, getting to a particular outcome so that that then can launch him into the felt need that he's wanting to discuss. I'm just going to guess here. And again, um, our listeners probably know that... Uh, that these are played for me, this is the first time I ever hear them, which is why I'm so often speechless. And I, which is why we all love it. Good. And I'm going to stab in the dark uh, here um, and say uh, something like, uh, when the devil is messing around with you, all you need to do is sneeze at him. Am I, am I getting close? You are in the ballpark. Okay. Well, let's see how he develops this. This is the sneeze heard around the world. This is arguably the most popular sneeze uh, in human history. There is no doubt that this sneeze has been preached uh, from every generation since. Thousands of years, this story has been told. And this sneeze has testified of the goodness and the grace of God. I don't know where this guy comes up with this stuff. I mean, I'm not going to argue with him the fact that for thousands of years the story hasn't been told, but that this sneeze is the sneeze that has been heard all over the world. <laughs> <laughs> the sneeze heard around the world. Wow. I would just say I've never preached on this text in my life because it doesn't come up in the prickable system. I, sure. I don't know that it comes up in the prickable system in the three-year series. I, I don't know. Um, and so now he's going to ratchet it up, really uh, try to drive this whole felt needs symbolism of the sneeze, I guess you'd say. I'm not, I'm not sure. We'll just let him keep on, keep on going. And we see that this sneeze um, is a, a sneeze that um, brought the child back to health, back to life. Uh, it's important for us to know uh, that sneezing is a sign of health. In fact, when people sneeze, a uh, popular right, response is Gesundheit, which is German for good health, or God bless you. Um, you know, it is, um, it is myth that when you sneeze, right, that your heart stops beating. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, because of that um, myth, people would, when they would hear someone sneeze, they would be reminded of, the shortness and the brevity of life, and therefore offer someone God's blessing. But sneezing is a sign of health. And what's interesting to me is that God did not take away right, the irritants or the disease or the infection, which he could have done. But rather, he brought the child back to a place of health. And the healthy child then sneezed seven times. Yeah. 
this is just such such a number one a tangle of of nonsensical non sequiturs right uh a sign uh sneezing is a sign of health he's contended uh and that's why people say gesundheit right i mean people say gesundheit because they're like you're coming down with a cold i hope you get better soon <laughs> get away from me exactly yeah right uh and um <laughs> well this is typical with this guy what he does is he starts with the text. See, this this takes us full circle where we started. Like he he's summarizing the biblical narrative, and then he begins to read a portion. But then, because he's got this really bizarre interpretation, it starts to make this turn into this is the same guy who was reading off the blog about the uh, scientific supernatural star that the wise men followed where he was totally confused again right and he's reading you know what we perceive to be something off of a blog and so this is what he's doing and then he takes the turn then into his own life and i've cut it all out but it talks about how uh how he sneezes uh but it's not a sign of health it's a sign that there's pollen and dander and dust in the room and his body is expelling this stuff that's called up into his membrane. It's not his fault. It's right. the dander's fault. Correct. And but this uh, is this is really getting fanciful, isn't it? <laughs> well, let's see where he goes next. You know, a sneeze is an involuntary catching of the breath and expelling it violently. When he sneezed seven times, he was violently, right, expelling every bit of sickness and every bit of disease that had invaded his body that was trying to destroy uh, his life. I think it's interesting that God didn't just get rid of the sickness or disease, but rather made him healthy enough to dispel it. On its own. Okay, I feel like you. I have nothing to say here. This is just ridiculousness. And I would hope that our listeners can hear this. What's he speculating about? Uh, and why the speculation? Why, why, why say, I mean, there must, he's going to go somewhere with this, right? That God got him to a certain point and now he's got to go the rest of the way. Right. And where he's going to go, and I think it's in the next clip, if not the next one, the certainly the next one, it's where he's talking about how, as a church, we need to sneeze out any sort of bitterness or gossip. I mean, he's dealing with a problem in the church. There's, there's like, there seems to be, after listening to it several times, there's some sort of rumor mill going on, and people are bailing on the church, and they're leaving. And so his point is, we need to sneeze that out. These are, this is, uh, the, I don't know if he calls it sin, but the sin needs to be eradicated, and the people who are causing the dissension, they need to be sneezed out, and we need to breathe back in the grace and the wonder, I think he calls it, or the amazement of God. That's what we need to do. We need to, we need to expel the bad and breathe in the good. And it's amazing that this text from Second Kings 
discusses this. Right. But if we take what was said at the very beginning from the miracle grow guy, then <laughs> then this is good preaching. Because the word is what transforms, and at least the word has gone out, even if I have a, a dumpy sermon. And a completely false interpretation of the word. Right. You know, that that is not the word going out. Go back to Mr. Miracle Grow Guy. Uh-huh. The devil peppered his temptation of Christ with the word of God. That was not salutary, that use of the word of God. You can't just say, because I got a Bible passage here, everything's going to be hunky-dory. That's not how it goes. If you don't get the sense of what the text is saying and proclaim that sense, you have actually put a lie to God's word and made it do opposite what God wants to do with it. I believe that as the body of Christ, we are the hope of the world. I believe that as the body of Christ, right, we, uh, we are a, a picture of Jesus Christ to the world. We are his hands, his feet as the church. We are the community of the called out ones. We are called, right, to be uh, the, the children of God in the earth, the children of promise, the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. And I believe that here in this text, we see, right, that healthy bodies sneeze, that healthy bodies will violently expel sickness and disease. Now, I grew up with allergies. <laughs> and this is where he goes on and talks about his own uh, physical ailments and how when he sneezes, uh, everybody knows. He's, he's right about what he's saying about the body of Christ. Agreed! But this must be determined from the clear scriptures, not from the Shunammite son. What? A little leaven leavens a whole lump, right? And uh, you look in uh, 1 Corinthians and where Paul's talking about the, the marriage stuff, that you're supposed to expel those who uh, refuse to repent of their, of their sin. That's, this is uh, a good, right, and salutary use of God's word of law to proclaim uh, ultimate judgment over, over this sort of stuff. But to use the Shunammite son, good night. What is this? This is American evangelicalism. That's what this is. Why couldn't they go to the clear scriptures on this? I mean, I mean, why couldn't they go to a scripture that actually says this stuff instead of finding this story that they think gives them a creative edge? Right. What is this? Is this? It, it turns te it turns the scripture into this plastic text. It's like a rubber or a what do they call it a plastic nose or a Play-Doh nose that you can twist whatever way you want it to to twist. And I am allergic to dust and pollen. If I get anywhere near dust and pollen, my eyes will begin to get watery, and I can promise you that I will begin to violently and uncontrollably sneeze. And my children often laugh at my sneeze because when I sneeze, I mean, it is an event. You know, it is unmissable. It is unmistakable, right? And anyone near me or around me is going to hear my sneeze. And, and I'm thankful, right, for my sneeze because that lets me know, right, that pollen and dust is near. And it is trying to invade my physical body. And just like there are invaders, right, of our physical body, that want to 
you know, that, that want to cause havoc on our physical body and cause sickness and disease in our physical body. There are spiritual agents that are irritants and destructive agents that want to come and ultimately destroy the church of Jesus Christ spiritually. And these sneezes, I believe, show us just how important it is for us to violently expel any agent that would irritate or try to destroy what God is doing in the life of his church. Do we... (laughs) What do we do? Take a billy club to him and drive him out of the church? Is that what violent expulsion is? I, uh, I don't know, but he's finally made the turn here to, to what he wants wants the text to say. It's from reading the text to interpreting the text to explain. This is what blows me away. Like he defines what a sneeze is. Like it, it's the it's the violent, uh, you expulsion. know, expulsion. Right, as, right. As if. Nobody knows what a sneeze is. It dri- this drives me crazy. But here's the deal. He needed to do that. He has to. Because he wants to talk about violently expelling the Correct. other things, right? Correct. Yep. And then he talks about his own life and how he's a big sneezer and how it's indicative of, of something going on in and around him that he can't see. And now we're finally closing the loop here into... Uh, what's going on in that these uh, spiritual agents, nefarious spiritual agents, are coming against the church and they need to be violently driven out. What would happen if this is the type of preaching that you have heard for a generation? So you end up turning Scripture into this blank canvas on which you can paint whatever you want to paint but see that's the problem you're now the painter exactly god's no longer the painter right and so it can be a pollock picture where we just splash stuff against the canvas or it can be a monet where it's really you know things are fuzzy here and things are you know kind of muted here and uh, you have to stand back and maybe close one eye and lift up one leg and then oh my goodness it's a it's a woman sitting beside a lake. But no matter what, it is not the picture God painted. Right. That's the problem. And so if you're fed for a generation this type of preaching, how can salvation truly be what salvation truly is? How can sin be as heinous as it truly is? How can original sin be inherited how can christ's death upon the cross be as magnificent as it truly is as how can it be good news right there there's a an entire diminishment of the, of the of the entire message of the scriptures it's diluted watered down becomes absolutely nothing and see this and, is and the church souls to hell. this is the church this is why you know it has no teeth in the culture, the church has no teeth, and it's because of this, what we're hearing. These are not isolated cases. No. You see, I believe that if we're going to be a healthy church, we have to breathe in wonder and amazement 
and we have to expel violently indifference and disinterest. We cannot come into our gatherings indifferent or disinterested in what God is doing in the life of the church. You know, I hear so many people say, you know, I'm not coming, I'm not going to go to the church anymore because I'm not getting fed. Well, I I just want to let everybody know that, you know, it's impossible for me as the pastor of this church to preach five times on a Sunday to five full groups of people plus all of those online and meet every single need in one sermon collectively every Sunday. And if you're not careful, right, you will allow yourself to come in, right, to an environment like this where I am reading scripture, uh, where I am lifting up the name of Jesus and Jesus is present and give yourself permission, you know, to not partake because you don't like what's being served. They shouldn't. They shouldn't like what's being served. He, he is not, uh, it, I mean, I've heard, this is the second sermon I've heard of this guy. Uh, both of them have been complete hogwash. And if this is meeting no needs, I mean, I, 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 I hope what the people are saying is, is not, this isn't meeting my felt needs. What I hope people are saying is, there's nothing here. And praise be to God if that's what's happening. Yes, praise be to God. But sadly, these are the same people who've been taught this same pablum for a generation. They're just going to go to somebody else who's got more chops than this guy. Maybe so. Get back to what he said here about he's got these five services, and then, of course, he's, got, he's preaching to the online audience, and we, you know, we can't. We can't forget about them. Because that must add an awful big burden to them. <laughs> Having I mean, this video camera on me the whole time is just like, you cannot imagine how draining that is. But he's trying to say that he's there reading the Word of God. And Jesus is here. But this is my question. If the interpretation is wrong, if the task of preaching is done in a piss-poor way, and when you say is Jesus there? And when you say that when the task of preaching is done poorly, you're not talking about his delivery. No. No, you're talking about the actual words that he is proclaiming in the name of Christ and, and he's the breaking thoughts. the sixth, he's breaking the second commandment. Right. And the thoughts that lead into this sermon, like before he even uh you know begins to type before he begins to write on a page, you know, he's thinking, where do I want to go? And then how do how does the text get me to where I want to go? Right. It's total violation of hallowed be thy name, uh, of our prayer, uh, violation of the second commandment. You see, I found that a healthy church will violently reject a spirit of indifference and disinterest in other people. But a church that is unhealthy, a church that is sick, a church that is vulnerable, right, will be filled with people that slowly are are just self-consumed, 
right? And only interested in themselves and what they can get. But I found if you come, right, with amazement and you come with wonder and you come with expectancy to meet Jesus, you'll begin to look for him. So it's, it's pack your bags, we're going on a guilt trip. I think it is. I think he's right about what he's saying, that a congregation that does not expect to meet Jesus is going to have a hard time hearing Jesus when they show up. The problem is that his proclamation can't give them Jesus. You see, as Elisha entered into that room and he laid across that boy's physical body, I believe that the Spirit of God was on Elisha. But you know, the Spirit of God is in us. And as the Spirit of God was on him, he laid on top of that boy, and the Spirit of God began to to bring what was dead back to life. The Spirit of God began, right, to, to bring him from a place of sickness and disease to a place of health. And when he got to that place of health, he began to sneeze seven times. Seven is the number of perfection or completion, which means he sneezed the exact amount, right, to become perfectly healthy, completely healed and whole. Now, I think there are, there are a lot of things. There are a lot of things that God can do for us. There are a lot of things that God can do for us, but I believe I believe there are some things that we have to choose on our own. The Bible says, I've set before you today life and death, blessing and cursing. We must choose. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. My prayer is that you would choose life. And in choosing life, what you're doing is, is you are breathing in the word of God. You are breathing in the Holy Spirit of God. And when you breathe in the spirit, of God, you are breathing in wonder and amazement. You are breathing in faith and confidence. You are breathing in selflessness and love. You are breathing in faith and confidence. I believe that the Holy Spirit is here today and I believe that as we breathe in the very breath of God today in his presence, I believe, I believe that God wants to show us some things. I think that the Lord wants us to see that spiritual sneezing is healthy because there should be some environments that we walk into and immediately we spiritually sneeze. I believe that there are, there, are, there are invading agents and contaminants that when they show up in our lives, there should be a sneeze. And I think that when we ignore the sneeze for far too long, what ends up happening is, is right, our body begins to get invaded and we get weak and we become vulnerable. Oh my goodness. Oh... Okay, I'm starting to feel like you now. I know, I know how you feel. There's just, there's just nothing to say to this because he's saying nothing. Yes, there. The, this text has not been interpreted 
It has not been interpreted properly. Uh, it has become just a pretext for him to jump on a hobby horse and berate his congregation for telling him the truth about his proclamation, which is that there's nothing there. And I was reading this week, and I was reading about, you know, what happens, right, when we can't sneeze, because there, there actually is people that, right, they need to sneeze, but they can't sneeze. And there, there was like these 12 different things that you can do to get your body to sneeze. And you know what was funny to me is one of them was look at the light. That by looking at the light, there is something that happens supernaturally that will cause your body, what, body to violently, right, dispel these invasive toxins that enter into your body violently. And here's what I found. I found that sneezing is a sign of health. I found that sneezing lets me know where I am vulnerable. Sneezing, I found, is is something that needs to be done regularly by looking at the light and allowing ourselves to violently expel. You know, the truth is, is that all of us are here today and the enemy of our soul, our adversary, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's trying to invade our life. And you know what? God works in our life. Scripture says that we attain the promise little by little. Salvation happens in a moment, but sanctification happens little by little. And you know what? Satan, our adversary, always mimics and copies God. And so you know what? He's never just going to show up, you know, like you think that he will, but he will show up little by little, little by little. And if you're not careful, if you're not aware, what will happen is, is it'll begin to wear your body down physically, spiritually. And before you know it, you'll become weak, you'll become vulnerable. And in this season of harvest, you will not be able you will not be able to flourish and prosper because you have not violently rejected the negative agents, the negative invaders of your soul. Oh my. He, he's just not letting it go, is he? He is on a roll here. Isn't it fascinating how he reached for this, uh, you know, like advice on how to sneeze when he can't sneeze? You look at the light. You look at the light, and now he's turned this in you know, come to the light, or, uh, I mean, Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, this is really bad. <laughs> you think? Yes, I do. <laughs> All right, one last clip. Okay, do it. I wonder who's here today who is maybe feeling pressure. I wonder who's here today who's feeling the congestion, the buildup of Irritating, invading toxins spiritually into your body. I wonder who's here today who says, you know what? I'm experiencing all of the symptoms, feeling the pressure, carrying the weight. I don't know what to do. I want to tell you what you can do. You can call upon the Lord. and You can begin to breathe in the Spirit of God, and you can begin to violently reject every negative invader of your mind, every negative invader of your soul, every uh, demonic attack of the enemy.
today. Okay, we got we got through it. Uh, I didn't hear you sneeze. I didn't sneeze. I got to blow my nose, though. Why? Get rid of this stuff that we've been <laughs> hearing for the last however long. Amazing, amazing, amazing use of God's Word as nothing but a pretext. What a despicable abuse of this precious word that the Lord has given to us. We hope that by analyzing the abuse of the Bible that our listeners would make sure that they go and they hear what, Pastor Bros? Proper law and gospel preaching always pointing to Christ as the Savior from sin and from death and from the devil's power. Where that lacks, you haven't heard a proper sermon. And so if if I'm used to hearing about felt needs every Sunday, what what correction needs be put in place? You need to see your real need, don't you think? That you are a hell and death-bound sinner. That's your real need. All of the other stuff is uh, incidental incidentals of a sinful world. Uh, you need a rescue from this. Do you think the Shunammite woman's son? Do you think he? Do you think he died again? I'm sure he did. And that was a result of what? Of his own sin. So he. So he still had the sin, is what you're saying, right? And that's what he needed was the Lord Jesus, his faith, faith in in uh, the coming Messiah. There's no question about it. I was wanted to ask the question. Um, so you said. What should our what should hearers do? Well, first of all, they should go to a Missouri Synod church, a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod church, or a Wisconsin Synod church, or an Evangelical Lutheran Synod church. They're going to hear proper biblical preaching. But I wonder uh, if it would be possible for us, sort of reflecting on what we've heard here, to say these are the hallmarks of the abuse or misuse of God's word. And I think it must be very difficult for people to hear it. So people are going to listen to this podcast. If they've been, if they're in this generation that's been raised on this, they may understand what we've talked about here, but they're not going to be able to discern it once they go back to church. Correct. Because they like the guy who is presenting. Even though he's got bad interpretation, faulty hermeneutics, terrible application in regard from the scriptural narrative. They like him. So they like him. They've never but, been in his house. He's never been in their house, but they like him. Right. So so there's that. They got that going. Uh, these preachers have that going for them. Um, let's put that aside, and let's just say that somebody says, okay, I'm willing to put aside my my liking of uh, Pastor Mike, uh, and I'm willing to listen critically. How do they listen critically? This is the big, this is the million dollar question, isn't it? Well, we've said this before as well. A beginning step is to take a piece of paper and to write the word Jesus at the top, to write the pastor's name at the top, and then to write the church at the top. Three columns, 
And then all you do is you just check, just check the number of times you hear Jesus compared to the references made to the preacher, compared to references made to the church. That right there is just a, a good kind of watermark right at the beginning. It might not be um, uh, the exclusive piece of evidence uh, that you need, but that's a good indicator is Jesus being referred to in this sermon more so than the pastor or the church. That's a, that's a fantastic indicator, and it's a, it's a good starting point. I can imagine a sermon that says Jesus, Jesus, Jesus all the time and still misinterprets the text. Correct. And so uh, I'm trying to think of, of how to say, I mean, this is very difficult for me. I've been a Lutheran my whole life. I don't really understand what goes on in somebody's mind when they hear a sermon like this and, and, and check off on it and say, oh, this was a fantastic sermon. I, I don't. I don't know how they get there. But is there is there a question? Is there a sort of a rubric here where, where people could say, okay, here's the text that the guy is preaching on. What does the text say? It's not rocket science to figure out what the text says, is it? I mean, at a basic level, what this text said here was that a prophet of God who had who had been a uh, who had received the spirit and had received the succession of prophecy in Israel, lived with a Shunammite woman and her husband, promised them a son, the son died, and then this prophet uh, to, and actually there's no, there's no reason given, this prophet simply raises the child from the dead at the behest of the mother. That's, that's the story. That's it. How do we help them, how do we help hearers understand that what we just heard is an improper application of this text? I don't know. I'm thinking about, though, a, a series of 25 questions that was made by a fellow by the name of Todd Friel. And he encourages people to take these 25 questions and call the pastor and ask him outright. Rather than listening to sermons, it's really an interview, which no pastor's going to do. I guarantee you, uh, I mean, well, I shouldn't say no. I'm, most pastors are not going to do. Once, once somebody starts asking a pastor questions like these, he's like, hey, why don't you just, instead of the questions, why don't you just come and check out our people and, you know, get a cup of coffee at the uh, at our, our in-house Starbucks on me, and, uh, and we'll just see you Sunday. But the first question out of the shoot is, what is man's biggest problem, sin or self-esteem? And just see what the pastor would say. What must a man do to inherit eternal life? Asking the pastor. How do you deliver the salvation message? Another question, how hard is it to become a Christian? How often do you talk about sin, righteousness, and judgment? Who do you do church for, seekers or members? Do your sermons emphasize theology, or are they just relevant? What are the essentials of the faith? And do you have a cross in the sanctuary? I mean, these weren't all 25. The idea here is, is that before someone exposes themselves to poor preaching, or any preaching for that matter, Friel's point is, 
call the pastor and ask these questions. I think that's a great thing to do. I wonder how this guy, this Muncie character we've been listening to, would answer those. I, um, and I'm betting any money, it what he'd sneeze it out. Oh, he wouldn't even he wouldn't even answer the question. No, I can you can just tell that you're you're Pharisaical uh, in your approach, and um, you know. It, it needs to be expelled. I need to breathe in uh, wonder and my amazement and you're being negative and yeah you're you're just you're just a pollen in a booger. <laughs> so is he but but I, I would think that he would answer the question, you know what's man's biggest problem, sin or self-esteem? I'm sure he would answer it's sin. I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I think what the I think what the American evangelical I I almost wonder I'm starting to wonder this do they operate on like two planes like here's here's the theology that if pressed we would know the right answers for but here's what we enjoy hearing and and that's on a totally different plane well and I would argue that most of the hip cool conferences are on that secondary plane what you just said. So so proclaiming God's word is nothing about bringing, oh, you know, um, the theologians, the Lutheran theologians say that theology is a habitus practicus. It's a practical, not habit, um, bearing. Uh, nothing that God proclaims in his word is impractical. That's the beginning presupposition. It doesn't need to be made practical. It is already. And so the pastor's job is simply to relate what the Lord has taught in his word. You don't have to dress it up. No need. Well, next time we'll get together and hopefully find something a little bit more stimulating for you, Pastor Bruss. But my guess is it's probably going to be just as depressing. How about Mike? We have, we have to finish up with Mike. We got more baptism junk to do and Lord's Supper stuff, don't we? Oh, you miss you miss Mike Heiser. See, huh? I think he's more he's much more he's got something to say. He's wrong, but he's got something to say. These guys have nothing to say. I I could turn on a TED Talk and have as much sermonic critique of a TED Talk as I have of what these guys are saying. Yeah, I could sit on my back porch and watch flies bust up against the uh, the screen. And have more critique of their theology. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.